Welcome to the Feminists for a People's Vaccine podcast, a space for imaginations, discussion, and feminist analysis from the global south. In this creative journey, we approach the tough questions brought to light by the pandemic. Join us to look at this once-in-a-lifetime event as a passageway to imagine a fair and just world for all. I'm Vanita Naik Mukherjee, and I'm an Indian feminist with Dawn's Executive Committee based in Delhi. For those who cannot see me, I'm wearing an aquamarine tunic, I have silver hair, black eyes, brown skin, and South Asian features. Our very special guest today is Nidhi Goyal. Nidhi is a disabled feminist working for the past decade on visibilizing disabled women and having their voices heard. She's the founder and executive director of Rising Flame, a leading and national award-winning Indian disability rights organization. Although the conditions and contexts are different in other lower and middle-income countries, the experiences of women with disabilities during the pandemic are similar. Nidhi will speak from her work and observations in India. A very warm welcome, Nidhi. It's a privilege for Dawn to have you today. Thank you so much, Vanita. Thank you for having me here and thank you for the kind introduction. For all uh, my blind and low vision listeners, just to say that I am Nidhi Goyal. I have a South Asian or Indian face um, with my hair tied back. Uh, black hair, fortunately, <laughs> black top, green jacket, and a black and gold neck piece. COVID-19 has spotlighted the critical importance of access to medicines, especially vaccines. So what has been the experience of people with disabilities in terms of access to vaccines, Nidhi? It's very interesting, Juanita, that you've asked this question and we've begun our conversation with this because for me, in my head, the first question is, what does access even look like for people with disabilities? How many times when we talk about access, have we unpacked this whole idea of what access looks like for people standing at the margins, living with diversities? You know, we look at maybe geographical diversity, we've looked at language literacy, so we talk about diversity in language or, or, you know, just literacy around how do you make information and services accessible to people who may not read and write um, any sort of language. We look at the rural and urban divide, but very often we don't look at what it means to provide accessible information before even talking about access directly to vaccines. Um, to someone who's deaf or hard of hearing, right? How many times, um, you know, for us, even as a part of our research, the major critical announcements around health, around emergency, around lockdowns, around vaccinations that governments announce, um, that major sort of decision-making bodies and authorities announce are not accompanied by sign language. So we're talking about a whole different form of access. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, when public transport and infrastructure being already inaccessible, we're talking about a systemic sort of barrier, an infrastructural barrier that already exists, not just in India, but also largely in most developing countries. We're talking about this infrastructural inaccessibility. We're talking about living in the times of social and physical distancing. The only way access could be in some form restored or provided for someone like me even, who lives with blindness, 
on a street that's inaccessible is human support. In the times of social distancing, you don't feel safe enough to ask for that help. Nobody feels safe enough to offer that help. I mean, I could focus on access to vaccines, etc. Um, but just to even say from, you know, the first layer of lockdown that happened in India, uh, last year we published a report called Neglected and Forgotten, the impact of the COVID crisis on women with disabilities in India. And in that, women really reported from everything from a digital access barrier to a physical access barrier. It is pretty mind-boggling and mind-blowing to understand the layers and the depths of access at every step, so to say, during this pandemic and exasperating the existing ones that were there in terms of access to transport, etc. You know, I'd like to understand a little more about this very complex and multi-layered uh, challenges to access and how intersectionality plays out for people with disabilities, women with disabilities, where the type of disabilities and the social identities like caste, race, you know, intersect and determine differential access. And how does gender pan out in these situations? Um, I think it's so interesting because we basically um, somehow don't unpack the layers of access. I think once we unpack them, we'll realize that all of this is important to build this concept of universal access. So disability rights really works on universal access. And it really believes that once we focus on building this universal access, it not just benefits people with disabilities or makes creates an enabling environment for them. It creates an enabling environment for everyone. Uh, but let me first focus on how gender plays a critical role, right? We're talking about survival in the pandemic through technology. In India, we don't really have major data on technology ownership. We don't have very accurate data on digital connectivity. And if you look at surveys or, or research that has been done by civil society organizations, you'll realize that gender or, or women owning technology is really, really low. Women's access to technology is really, really low. Women's access to privacy on digital devices is really, really low. Why is this important to think about intersectionality in this way when we are looking at women with disabilities? Let's say, for example, we don't have this technological ownership and access. We're basically talking about not being able to register for vaccination, not being able to register for telemedicine services, not having the space to talk to your own doctor, the privacy, if there's a shared device, and if you're a disabled woman who also needs support in caregiving, you basically have no privacy in reporting to the doctor on what's happening to you. And also privacy in sort of accessing health and other legal support in cases of violence. So we're looking at how gender and technology intersects with disability and creates further barriers to accessing these very critical sort of services in an emergency situation. You know, sometimes we don't realize how much COVID has exacerbated the existing inequalities, right? And um, somehow last year and this year, we're not having that conversation. But when the whole sort of global health crisis emerged across the world, it said that, oh, this is nothing to do with, you know, class privilege. COVID can grip anybody. And it's like an equalizer. And I was like, no, it's not, right? It's not. It cuts across class. It cuts across privilege. It cuts across disability and many other access. So, I mean, just to also say, and this might be a little harsh, but... Just as a reality, Vanita, we're talking about 
not just physical sort of systems, right? Like tangible systems. We are also talking about social fabric and mindsets that deny us this access. And I'll give you one example. When there is an overload, right? And we experienced this a lot in the beginning of the pandemic. When there were 50 patients who needed a ventilator and there was one ventilator available, we were basically using a capitalist framework of productivity to say who has a better chance of survival. So this access is also very shaded or colored by what society thinks and perceives of you, right? And so if you're at the lowest rung of the social ladder, you're not going to be the one who will get the ventilator. So, you know, the combination of what we thought and what we believe and what exists has really shaped the way women with disabilities or gender and disability play out in this access to um, critical health services. It's very interesting you speak about tangible, intangible barriers, social barriers, Nidhi, and the very stark example of, you know, ventilators. Many people, high demand and very little supply and the kind of priorities the health system makes in which, I mean, people with disabilities fall at the lowest priority. It reminds me of what we heard last year in Italy with regard to the elderly who were seen as dispensable. I think what it really brings uh, to us is this whole discourse on ableism. So, you know, the elderly, because they're old and they finish their productive lives, are dispensable. So are people with disabilities because they're perceived not to contribute in the way able people do. And it's also a kind of a neo-Darwinism where it is survival of the fittest. So I think what this pandemic has really done is to bring all these ugly and very stark realities on our face. And it's just chilling at some level to think about how, you know, as a society, we are actually dealing with some of these issues. I just wanted to say, Vanita, that I still feel, you know, around elderly and disability, there's a lot of connections or linkages that you could draw, hearing loss, sight loss, slow movement, a lot of that is connected. Those are all disabling conditions. You're moving towards disability and that's why in the disability rights movement, just to create this framing of, you know, understanding that you're not better and nobody's less or more, the whole term of temporarily abled bodies uh, emerged, right? To really, really emphasize that point that at any point, given point, somebody could meet with an accident, somebody could contract an illness. Um, we also see that post-COVID, there have been many, many disabling medical conditions that have emerged, right? So aging and disability have a close connection. But even then, um, when it comes to vaccines, we saw that age-related priority was being given. But in vulnerability, even last year, to be identified as vulnerable, we were not immediately identified. People with health conditions were identified. People with disabilities were not identified. Even in vaccines and the priority of vulnerable groups, people with disabilities were not prioritized. So again, even within vulnerable groups, somehow we create, you know, the sense of hierarchy within marginalizations. And I find it you know, I'm laughing because I stand at multiple marginalizations and multiple access of privilege as well at the same time. And I find it really strange how we manage to even create hierarchies within marginalizations. 
you know the invisibilizing of people with disabilities has had such a heavy toll on people within institutions people with psychosocial disabilities i think are really really you know like even the prisons were thought of that these are places where you know there can be a very fast spread of the covid infection but somehow you know people who are in these kind of institution completely locked in and with very little support are just not thought of it's really important that you brought that point up um so people with psychosocial disabilities living in institutions let me just give you an example where the capacity let's say was 50 beds they were there were 175 or over 200 people living in there right there was no proper sanitation um sewage and other hygiene facilities already in most institutions in india there are none and then when covid hit there was no way to create that kind of um of course they were not the priority at all but also when you've already made the situation so bad it's such a dehumanizing situation in which you've condition in which you've kept people it's almost that you've dehumanized them before the pandemic began so it doesn't matter what happens to them in the pandemic and the other thing was you know blanket sort of shutting down of institutions so there are a lot of residential homes where people with disabilities live they were just shut down without any kind of or they were like okay now you go back and we don't know when we can take you in so what are the i mean i'm also imagining you know some of these people in this institution send back home and the homes are not prepared they do not have the care support they do not have the infrastructure and all of that okay so it sort of brings me to the issue of support systems structures that people with disabilities can depend on to meet the challenges of access to services medicines i mean in this context since we're talking about access to medicines and vaccines in particular could you speak a little more about that yes So um Rising Flame basically conducted an in-depth research on impact of the covid crisis on women with disabilities um in the first sort of phase which I, which we like to call the first phase last year and in the second wave um we came out and we said we need to capture the impact on all persons with disabilities because this wave was so much more destructive and some of the barriers that persons with disabilities have reported themselves you know through the survey and also through the registration campaign that we ran so a couple of findings are that we all have to register online so there is no other way to register for the vaccine i definitely want to ask this question of how much do we imagine there is a digitally literate india right so we're talking about people who don't have access or understanding of digital spaces or operational capacity to people who find the websites inaccessible you know there are simple pieces like captchas on websites and pieces like that make the websites inaccessible so for a long time the government website where you have to register for a vaccine was inaccessible so people with disabilities called us for help on registration some of them had caregivers who were not literate who had aging parents who supported them in everything else but they were not tech savvy right um so we also ran this drive to support their caregivers so them the persons with disabilities and caregivers to register for vaccines now the next barrier was there was no information so we worked as a platform to also provide what kind of vaccines were available so this whole piece around access to information right that clarity wasn't there 
But a very major concern was how do we find slots? And this is extremely important. You know, vaccine registration in the country was in two parts. One, you had to register yourself. And second, you had to find the slot. Now, for anyone who's even tech savvy, they know that it was like a race. It was. It's basically sporadic slot opening. So our volunteers were calling people with disabilities at 11.30 in the night saying, we're really sorry, but a slot has opened up. Can we register you until this conversation happened? The slots would close. Right? We're not accounting for time for anybody who lives with any slow conditions. Like I, with my screen reader, need a couple of seconds extra, even if we had the same technological capabilities, right? Or we were equally tech savvy. I would still need those seconds or some time extra. I would be slower. There are people who process slow. They would be slower. They read slow. It's just as if you know, again, it goes back to if you're not survival of the fittest, right? If you can, if you can do all of this, if you're super functioning, you get the slots. So it was so challenging. We could register so many people with disabilities, but we found even our volunteers found it challenging. And then when you registered slots, it's also about slots opened up in any part of the city. We're literally saying that either you need to be a high functioning person or you have to have your private car. What are we trying to say? Who has this access to finally the vaccines at the center? And that was a huge cause of people with disabilities not going to the centers. I must tell you that the only one or two states who have started mobile vaccines um, vans to vaccinate people with disabilities and the Municipal Corporation in Bombay, in Mumbai, which is one of the cities, has said that you could walk in. But these initiatives have been such few and so little in a vast country like India that we are basically battling. The only way, and once you reach the center, suppose you're a very privileged disabled person and you reach the center in some cab or maybe a private vehicle or something, there is no separate queue. So the other challenges that people have faced is that the centers themselves are inaccessible. So we are back to the square one of infrastructural inaccessibility. And B, there's no separate sort of queue. So you're expecting someone with a crutch to stand maybe for four hours in a crowded space and get their vaccines. You know, I can perfectly imagine the scenario because even we had to wait in long queues and, you know, it is tiring. And I can't imagine people who have so many different kinds of disability, even after getting a slot, unable to access. Can you speak a little more about other kinds of support systems and structures apart from the vaccine and how people with disabilities have managed this more than a year? I'm also thinking about education. You talked about the tech challenges and some of those intangible barriers. You know, there's also the issue of not having access to computers, education. And I'm really wondering that unless there is very specific software for the understanding the text and, you know, tailored to each kind of disability, it doesn't work. So I know that there's one state in India, Kerala, that has actually taken some pains in designing the uh, online education in a very inclusive fashion to tailor it to the extent they can. Right. Well, Vanita, we're talking about an economy, a nation, where we still function on models of special schools. And all the special schools are shut down. Most of these disabled kids, um, or majority of them, belong to underprivileged, economically marginalized rural backgrounds, or economically marginalized even if located in urban India, 
you know, or maybe caste marginalization, definitely class marginalization, where parents may, may or may not be literate. We're talking about special schools in this scenario. There are so many schools which have just been shut down. And there is no technological capability. There's no online education. They're trying to do some education through phone calls. Um, we've not thought it through. For young people with disabilities, for kids with disabilities, we've not thought it through. You know, some of the special educators were reporting in our research report last year that when there are two kids um, in the family and there's one device, and the one kid is non-disabled, one is disabled, the non-disabled kid is prioritized. When there are two kids living with disabilities and one is a male child and one is a female child living with disability, the male child is prioritized. The female is told, anyway, you need to finish all the household work and your education isn't important. So even within disabilities, that kind of segregation and discrimination is there, right? So we can talk about impact of the pandemic on people's mental health, but we don't emphasize on impact of the pandemic on the mental health of persons living with disabilities what lockdowns have meant to them, how re-triggering it was. We talk about lockdowns being re-triggering for people who've come from conflict, who've been in war situations. But I haven't heard about anyone outside of the disability community talking about how much people with disabilities have, you know, particularly those who've acquired disabilities or met with accidents and have become disabled, have been at home for years together and really struggled to get out and have that rehabilitation and the support and the courage and then being pushed back and how re-triggering or re-traumatizing that would be. So I'm just saying that this primary issue around invisibility and gaps and this othering has not gone. And because of that, we're basically in this space where we're then not thinking about overall lives of people with disabilities. I mean, all said and done, everything exists and the inequalities exist. I think the focus needs to be on building back whatever we are thinking from now on. I mean, the past cannot be changed, but I think thinking from now on in a more inclusive fashion would be very important acknowledging the civil society and community response and support would be extremely important. So how would you imagine the future? Because, you know, this is something, it's also an opportunity to think of a different future, to imagine a new world, because it's a very, very unique experience, this pandemic in many ways. So how would you imagine world for people with disabilities? I mean, I have two responses to this at a philosophical level. <laughs> if we all imagine that we, this future is for all of us, that's the kind of future, I think, uh, where the othering stops, where the privilege stops, where we think and we're very benevolent around, oh, we also include them, we also support them, right? So this us and them and the top-down, the charity piece stops. Um, that would be a very, very idealistic future that I would think of. Um, but very practically speaking, I think um, taking stock of why some communities were impacted more than the others, being conscious and humble to say, these are the mistakes that we made. These are the invisibilities that we perpetuated. How can we work with them? And what can we do in terms of steps to build an inclusive world? I imagine a world where at multiple levels, so be it education, employment, policy making, media representation, we're looking at gender, disability, and all other intersections, having equal participation and equal space. So I think the voice, choice, 
autonomy, agency, leadership are really the pieces that I see around building back better. The Feminist for a People's Vaccine podcast is produced by Dawn, Development Alternatives with Women for a New Era, and TWN, the Third World Network. Today's episode was edited by Alice Furtado and engineered by Ernesto Sena. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Banita Nayak Mukherjee. See you on the next episode. <laughs>